content warning, sexual violence is described in the latter portion of this reading. If this is inappropriate for you right now, then that's okay. We appreciate you checking in. Otherwise, thank you for sticking around. We won't be able to fight for the liberation of women and cultural minorities in India and abroad unless we understand the oppressive dynamics that we're fighting against. So let's get into it. Fascism, Fundamentalism, and Patriarchy Written by Anuradha Gandhi in 2001 On the verge of Narendra Modi becoming Chief Minister of Gujarat, India Exactly one year after the carnage in Gujarat began, the country is still reeling from the horror of the events. Narendra Modi's expected victory in the assembly elections has further strengthened the position of the Hindutva fascist forces not only in Gujarat, but also in the country as a whole. Reviewing the strategy of Hindutva forces and the lessons from Gujarat become even more relevant now. Here we are concerned with the impact of the Hindutva fascist forces on women and on the women's movement. The agenda of the Hindu fascist forces is political. Their strategy is the maximum political mobilization of the Hindu masses, and their aim is the establishment of a Hindu Rashtra. It will be noticed that the present phase of Hindu fascist growth can trace its growth with the neoliberal economic policies of the early 1980s, and the aggressive policies of economic reforms and globalization of the 1990s is accompanied with the aggressive policies of Hindutva. The reasons for this are not too far to seek. The policies of economic reform have led to the extreme impoverization of not only a large section of the masses, but even of sizable sections of the middle classes. So there was urgent need to divert people's attention from their mass destitution through the whipping up of frenzy against Muslims and other minorities. Besides, mass anger against the blatant capitulation to the imperialists, particularly the US, is sought to be diverted through fake nationalism, like slogans of cultural nationalism and Hindu Rashtra. The extreme and continued polarization of Hindu society in Gujarat along religious lines, the sense of brazen confidence with which the attacking, looting, and killing was carried out, and the active participation of a section of the women from the upper castes, shows the Hindu fascist forces have been successful in Gujarat in taking their agenda forward. They have penetrated and succeeded in converting a section of the Hindu masses to their ideology and imbue them with the goal of Hindu Rashtra. What horror this pretends for the oppressed sections, the lower caste, women, especially women of minority communities, and the poor, does not need mention. Growing Fundamentalism Worldwide What It Means for Women The rise of Hindu fascist forces is part of the worldwide rise of fundamentalism and fascism. Imperialism, faced with its worst ever crisis since the interwar years, is encouraging and promoting fundamentalist forces and fascist organizations and propaganda. Imperialism strives for reaction everywhere. Lenin. As Hawley has argued, fundamentalist perspectives on gender cast a uniquely revealing light on the nature of fundamentalism as a whole. As it is, all religions have been patriarchal in the moral code they sanction and the social arrangements they uphold. 
and one of the central points of fundamentalist propaganda is a conservative ideology of gender. All fundamentalist forces, be they of the Christian denominations in the U.S., or Hindu, or the new religions in Japan, or Islamic forces, they proclaim the specific agenda of restoring the centrality of the family and home in the life of women, and patriarchal control over her sexuality. Hence, ideologues of the new right, even in the U.S., are claiming that there is a moral crisis in American society, and this is because of the fact that women are working outside the home. Though they have mobilized actively around opposition to abortion rights for women, they begin by arguing that welfare state expenditures have raised taxes and added to inflation, pulling the married woman into the labor force and thereby destroying the fabric of the patriarchal family and hence the moral order of society. According to Jerry Falwell of The Moral Majority, Children in the U.S. should have the right to the love of the mother and a father who understand their different roles and fulfill their different responsibilities, to live in an economic system that makes it possible for husbands to support their wives as full-time mothers in the home, and enable the families to survive on one income instead of two. Giving specious moral arguments, these fascists in the U.S. are aggressively presenting the so-called pro-life campaign. This campaign started with reactions to court judgments, but it has gone beyond that and has included attacks on abortion clinics, killing of activists, and doctors who help women get abortions done. At the same time, these very so-called pro-life forces are among the active campaigners for the continuation of the death penalty and larger military spending and aggressive international policy by the U.S. government. Hence, they are among the most conservative and reactionary sections of U.S. society. They have white supremacist views, indulge in openly racist activity, and are fascist in their nature of organizing and propaganda. The same is to be found in the conservative new religions that have sprung up in Japan, especially in the post-war period. A study in the early 90s says that, In the post-war period, many new religions have adopted an agenda of social issues on which re-establishing a patriarchal ideology of the family heads the list. The pre-war family system that they seek to reinstate institutionalizes male dominance and the authority of elders and keeps women's status low by restricting their sphere of choice in matters of marriage, reproduction, and divorce. The older family form is imbued with religious significance in such a way that to be a good wife and mother is not only proper, it is essential to women's salvation. Both in the U.S. and Japan, these movements have arisen in the context of a rapid change in women's role and transformation in the family structures. Women have been going out in large numbers, working outside the home, and earning an independent income. Islamic fundamentalism is a more complex phenomenon. Initially, in the post-Second World War period, it was propped up and sustained by U.S. imperialism in the face of democratic and socialist movements of people, like in the Arab countries. But with the restoration of capitalism in the Soviet Union, and especially China, and the betrayal of the democratic national liberation movements by their compromising leadership, anti-imperialism has been expressed in traditional and often religious ways. Islam has also become an ideological force adopted by movements against the U.S. imperialists, like in Iran, or become the expression of resistance as in Palestine today, due to the betrayal of the older, more secular, and left leadership. In the countries of the former Soviet Union, too, 
Islamic fundamentalism has become the means through which nationalist opposition to Russian domination and exploitation is being expressed. In countries like Afghanistan, where there was no anti-feudal democratic mass movement, modernization, and where increase in freedom to women was initiated from above during Soviet occupation, it could gain no support from the rural masses, and thus Islamic fundamentalism maintained its social base. Hence the warlords who came to power in Afghanistan after the Soviet withdrawal in 1992 were as reactionary as the Taliban that swept to power several years later. An RAWA, the women's organization that opposed the restrictions on women's rights, was as critical of the warlords as of the Taliban. Today, the same warlords are back in power under US protection, but whether they are reactionary regimes like the Saudi monarchy, or the more mass movement-based organizations, they've been making control over women's dress, her movements and manner of her participation in public life, an important part of their campaign. And this is what has gained the maximum publicity in the bourgeois and imperialist media, given the campaign being launched by American imperialism against Islam. Given the complex role of fundamentalism in the world today, the political role it plays will determine the manner in which we struggle against it. Religious fundamentalism of all types promotes patriarchy and other backward values, and must therefore be generally countered by all democratic and revolutionary forces. Yet today, fundamentalism has a dual role. First, fundamentalism of the Christians in the US, the Hindutva Brigade of India, etc., is part of the growing fascist policies of the state and ruling classes, and has to be seen and attacked in that context. On the other hand, Muslim fundamentalism today is growing in reaction to the US's aggressive warmongering and in reaction to the Hindu fascist offensive in the country, and so plays a different political role vis-a-vis -vis the state. So, with respect to the former, it is necessary to attack it thoroughly on all fronts, while regarding the latter, there is no need to see its anti-US-slash-anti-Hindutva role, while at the same time exposing its retrograde, patriarchal, and feudal thinking. The Indian Context in the Indian context, it is clear that, at present, the foremost enemy of women are the Hindutva forces. Hindutva breeds on the festering, stagnant pool of feudal values that continue to thrive in this backward, semi-feudal, semi-colonial system. The casteist, patriarchal and other feudal values already prevalent in this system, act as dry hay for the Hindu fascist fire, and the upper caste elite form natural allies for these venomous political vampires. Besides, due to the general backward thinking and weak democratic movement, other castes and classes also tend to fall prey to the aggressive and wide-scale propaganda of the Hindutva forces. During Rup Kanwar's Saudi immolation in 1987, which some commentators consider as a dress rehearsal for the demolition of the Babri Masjid, the Hindutva forces publicly revealed their patriarchal biases and attitudes. The event took place in a well-off village, Dayarala, about 50 kilometers from Jaipur in Rajasthan, but it snowballed into an all-India issue with the various organizations of the Hindutva forces coming out stridently in support of the practice of Saudi. While the progressive women's organizations organized a morcha in opposition to the Saudi and demanding the arrest of the culprits, supporters, mostly Rajputs, led by the Hindutva Brigade, took out a militant morcha of almost 30,000 in the state capital. 
the BJP leader, Vijayarahe Sindhya, openly came out in support of Sadi as our cultural heritage and argued that it is the fundamental right of a Hindu widow if she so desires. In their argument, if a widow voluntarily decides to immolate herself on her husband's funeral pyre, then there's no reason to oppose it. The woman is seen only in relation to her husband. Her independent existence does not count. By attaining sat, inner truth, a woman decides to immolate herself with her husband, and she thus acquires a power that will protect her husband in his journey beyond. Thus, the sadi, the one who acquires this power, is the model of devotion to her husband, the true pativrata, whose bond with her husband cannot be broken even with death, and she carries on to protect him after death. The conservative trading families from Rajasthan have funded and built innumerable sadi temples in Rajasthan and elsewhere, promoting this backward patriarchal ideology. Though their support for Saudi now is no longer so crude, they still uphold and glorify religious customs which uphold the same ideology and a role for women. The Hindutva forces have picked up the demand for a uniform civil code and thereby communalized yet another issue of women's rights. These very forces had opposed the reforms in the Hindu customary law pertaining to women's rights in property and marriage in the 1950s. But in the 1990s, they've demanded the introduction of the Uniform Civil Code so that Muslims can no longer be governed by their personal law. Their demand has nothing to do with the rights of women, whether Hindu or Muslim. It is only one more stick to beat the Muslim community. Their anti-human, patriarchal attitude came forth in Gujarat in its crudest and most violent forms, with the gang rapes and molestation of women in various districts and the vulgar propaganda on rape distributed widely in various places. All fact-finding teams have recorded testimonies of women who were either victims of rapes or witnesses to the rape of friends and relatives, and this must be understood in the context of the full significance of how this fascist mentality looks at women. When backward ideology sanctions and advocates the total subordination of women to men, then women become the symbols and carriers of social honor of the community, often even of the embodiments of the sovereignty of the state. Women for them are the representatives of the community and the transmitters and repositories of the culture of the community and its values. They are the means through which the community is reproduced and continued. They are using women to pursue their political ends, both when they're mobilizing them and when they are sexually attacking minority women. It's important to remember that these Hindutva forces, whether they be of the Song Parivar, the RSS, the Bajrang Dal, the BJP, or whether they are within other political formations like the Congress, they share the same reactionary attitude to women. Even in most individual cases, rape is an affirmation that the woman is an object of pleasure and an assertion of the power of man over her. But when rapes take place in the political context, as in Gujarat, as part of collective attacks, the act is organized aggression. It becomes a spectacular ritual, a ritual of victory, the defilement of the autonomous symbol of honor of the enemy community. This has been stated earlier but needs to be emphasized, especially when we see that the vulgar propaganda leaflets issued by the Song Parivar were explicitly sexual. There is nothing sexual about gang rapes or rapes of individual women in riots and such attacks, whether by communal forces or by police and other forces. These rapes are political acts meant to humiliate the, quote, enemy. Dishonoring the woman is dishonor of the community, 
a challenge and insult to the men of the community who could do nothing to, quote, protect the honor of the women, i.e. the community, unquote. In this whole play of power, the woman, her rights as a human being, do not count at all. Gujarat has once again proved that the Hindu fascist forces will stop at nothing to achieve their total domination over the religious minorities, especially over the Muslims. Justification for these rapes are to be found in the writings of the ideologues of Hindutva, in fact in the most sophisticated among them, in Savarkar's writing themselves. Savarkar, in his interpretation of history, portrayed the Muslim as lustful, sensuous, while the Hindu is impotent comparatively. The Muslim, driven by religious duty, abducted, raped, and forcibly converted millions of Hindu women, while Hindu men had a, quote, perverted sense of chivalry, unquote, that prevented them from doing anything to the enemy's womenfolk. He called it a law of nature, obeyed even by the animal world, that in a war, the men of the conquered tribe are killed, while the women are distributed by the victors amongst themselves. Savarkar wrote this in 1963 in his Marathi treatise, Six Glorious Epochs of Indian History, translated into English in 1971. But later, after the 1965 war with Pakistan, he repeated this idea even more strongly when he criticized Shivaji and the Chinaji Appa for not doing to Muslim women what they had done to Hindu women. Only a tit-for-tat policy would teach them, he asserted. From 1938 itself, in fact, Savarkar repeatedly addresses the theme of the violation of Hindu women at the hands of Muslims and the need to give up non-violence. So we should be very clear that the fascist outlook is even historically and morally justifying rapes and the killing of fetuses and newborn babes, a moral justification to conduct ethnic cleansing. As the Hindu fascists promote the worst forms of Brahminical orthodoxy, their patriarchal approach, though it has been the most degrading form against the minorities, particularly the Muslims and Christians, it is also manifest against women folk in general in the promotion of dowry, sadi, etc., and the confining of women to the house as a chattel for housework and production of children. Beside, the aggressive Hindutva offensive against Muslims have retarded the movement among Muslim women for reforms in their personal law as the entire community is being pushed back into the arms of their mullahs, where defense of their right to their faith has become the main issue before them. The increase in the use of the burqa is an example of such retrogression. That's where we will pause for now, gut-wrenching as it may be. In part two, we will resume with a section entitled The State's Patriarchal Communal Outlook. You know the deal, patreon.com slash epicincredulity. And for now, comrades, enjoy your epoch. <laughs>